So Matthew 12, 22 to 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he indeed may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy that will be forgiven will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will not be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, good morning. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. So if you're joining us for the first time, thanks so much for tuning in and being with us this morning. And if you're here and a member, so good to have you with us again week after week. I just wanted to start by encouraging you to keep going for Jesus at the moment. In Hebrews 13.5, Jesus says, God says to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I think this far into lockdown, we can definitely say that God has been, been at work massively in our community. And I know I sent out an email this week about, look, it's going to be a bumpy ride from here out as things start reopening. But I just want to encourage you to continue to persevere for the sake of Jesus, to love like he has loved you and to love one another for the sake of Christ. Because God really is at work in our midst. Even this far in, we're still gathering online. We're still sitting under God's word. We're still meeting in groups. So I encourage you just to make the most out of the final week of groups this week before we have a break. Over this time, because we've been online, as, as difficult as that's been, We've actually connected with more people and more widely than ever. Through those Try Something New Thursdays, we've connected more widely than we have before. We started an alpha course with just a week's notice. There's six people in that with uh, potentially some more joining next week. So I just want to encourage you, God really is at work. So continue pressing on. If you're not reading the Bible at the moment, jump in on that Hebrews group. Uh, let's Let's not waste this opportunity to follow Jesus with all our heart. Um, And on that as well, as we come up to the final uh, week of groups, and as we start to look towards next year, which I know seems like forever away, but we have some planning coming up for staff um, later in September. And one thing that would help us so much is if during groups this week, you guys could fill out a really short survey. Now, as we said, the next little while is going to be a bit bumpy. We're going to need some flexibility. There's going to need to be a lot of love and patience and fortunately, Jesus has everything we need and the grace we need to do that and to persevere in that. But something that would help us so much in coming through this together as a church and ensuring that no one's left behind would be if you could fill out that survey in groups this week. So your leaders will find out a little bit more about this tomorrow. But um, that would be a massive help for us in stepping forward as a church community united in Christ. So that's coming up this week, but just continue to press on. And, uh, and look forward to this morning because we're opening God's Word And we're going to hear a word that I think is pretty timely. 
Jesus is going to say something here that's pretty shocking, and it's meant to shock, and it's meant to wake people up out of their apathy. But I think it's a word that we need right now, and I think it's a word that we need because of a term that I learned this week. I learned a term this week that probably at the moment is my, is my favorite phrase. And I'm gonna, I'll teach it to you, and hopefully after this, I imagine for many of you it might become your favorite phrase as well, but it's this. Revenge, bedtime, procrastination. Revenge, bedtime, procrastination. Now, some of you may already know what that is or have some kind of sense of it, but if you don't, let me just explain this to you from an article by the, that title by Lu Hai Liang, explaining this phenomenon and where it came from. She says, Emma Rao spent almost three years on China's notorious 996 schedule, working from nine in the morning to nine in the evening, six days a week. That's the 996. Rao, who was originally from Nanjing, moved to the financial hub in Shanghai about five years ago to work for a multinational pharmaceutical company. The job quickly overtook her life. I was almost depressed, she said. I was deprived of all of my personal life. After her shift, which sometimes included overtime, she had a small window to eat, shower, and go to bed. But she sacrificed sleep in order to eke out some personal time. Often, Rao would stay up surfing the web, reading news, and watching online videos till well after midnight. Rao was doing what the Chinese have called, just forgive my pronunciation here, Baofusing Yahai. That is, revenge, bedtime, procrastination. That could also be translated as retaliatory, staying up late. She described the phenomenon as when people who don't have much control over their daytime life refuse to sleep early in order to regain some sense of freedom during late night hours. Now, I can't prove this empirically, but I suspect that there was a spike in revenge, bedtime, procrastination somewhere around week two of lockdown, and it probably hasn't dipped below that spike since. Now, I imagine the reason that so many people are doing this, again, I could be wrong, but I suspect it's the case, is because of something that that, um, I picked up in an article that actually Jacob sent to me earlier in the week. And it's an article called, There is a Name for the Blah You're Feeling, and it's called Languishing. And in this article, the author goes on to say that in year two of the pandemic, as the kind of the the predominant emotion will start to become languishing. And describes languishing as a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as though you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. It's a feeling of just meh. And it's kind of come about from the combination of just time indoors, of constant switch tasking from home life to work life to different tasks at work, an endless chain of cancelled events and holidays and reunions, and all of that just feel, makes, leaves us feeling kind of meh. Like nothing really matters. Like nothing I do is going to have much significance because everything seems to get cancelled anyway. It leaves us with a sense of kind of just languishing. That's the word for it. And it would be pretty understandable in this setting for people to feel like nothing matters, so I might as well just stay up late and watch videos and do whatever. Just kill some time. Try and get some sense of freedom back. And I think also this apathy can spill over into spiritual matters as well, can't it? that in this kind of setting, it might start to feel like, look, what I, what, I, what I think about God doesn't even matter either. There are so many different religions and worldviews. Look, what's the point? Nothing seems to matter. It doesn't matter what you think about anything, let alone God. And that's how I suspect that a lot of Sydney is feeling now, and perhaps, sadly, even the church. 
like just a sense of spiritual languishing, like nothing really matters that much. I want to put to you that this morning's passage is a wake-up call. It's meant to be like a bolt of lightning where Jesus is going to say, it matters. It light and dark, heaven and hell, life and death matters what you think about me. That actually Jesus is going to say, you can't be sort of met about Jesus or apathetic about who he is, that you have to land hard on who he is. And he's going to say that you are either with me or against me, but not in between. That there is no fence sitting with Jesus. And so I'm going to pray that this morning, that as we open God's word, that even this far into a lockdown and all of the languishing and whatever that comes with it, that God by his spirit might quicken our hearts to pay attention to his word, to hear from Jesus, his son, to be struck by it and to be moved to love God and to love others. So let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father God, we just pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would quicken our souls. That you would wake us from our languishing to hear your word. That your word is a sword and a fire and a rock and a shield. And may our May it pierce our souls this morning. May we hear and understand and may it enliven us to live for the joy and hope and love of the gospel and all that Christ might be glorified in your church. And we pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Well, in terms of where we're up to in the reading today, the section that was just before was where Jesus had entered a controversy about the Sabbath. In the, in the Jewish culture, Sabbath was a day of rest and you were not allowed to work at all. And a lot of people, the religious leaders in particular, had added a whole bunch of rules and conditions on top of this. There were just all kinds of things that you couldn't do. But Jesus goes and heals someone on the Sabbath and the religious leaders get upset about it. Now this is an absurd situation. It would be equivalent to, imagine you were, kind of, you were drowning and dying and a surf lifesaver comes out to rescue you and says, get on the board. And you say, I'd prefer it if you said please, and then didn't get on. That kind, of, that kind of nitpicking is what we're experiencing here. When Jesus does a miracle on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are like, yeah, was that really the right day to do it? But Jesus solves it by just saying, well, you know what? I'm Lord of the Sabbath, so you know what? I can do what I want. <laughs> if I want to heal someone or build a universe, I'll do it on any day of the week that I please because I made them all anyway. But after that, he withdraws for a while, And the controversy about who Jesus is continues. The Pharisees continue to debate whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God, really is the Messiah, really is sent of God. And that's where we land smack bang in this passage when Jesus performs another healing and it stirs another controversy. Look at what happens in Matthew 12. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So a man comes to Jesus who is blind and mute, apparently because of demon oppression. And Jesus heals him. And the people rightly respond. They see this miracle and they think, well, that's not normal. That doesn't normally happen. And so they're like, maybe this is the son of David, the king that God has promised who will rescue his people Israel. But no sooner do they say that, then Pharisees start saying, no, 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 this is Beelzebub. This is the work of Satan, that, that, Jesus, that Jesus does these things. And Jesus, knowing that this is what they were saying, responds and says, hang on, every kingdom that's divided against itself is laid waste. If Satan is now undoing the work of his emissary demons, his minions, then the whole thing is crumbling apart. Why on earth would he do that? And not only that, he goes on and says, well, hang on a second, how come when people from your own group, from the Pharisees, uh, by some rare occasion actually perform a miracle, you'll say it's by God. And when they cast out demons, you say it's an act of God. But when I do it, you say, well, he must be working for Satan. Jesus here is calling out hypocrisy on their behalf. He's calling out their confirmation bias. That they seem to have already decided that Jesus is not from God, and therefore, no matter what evidence is pre presented to them, they seem to be able to twist it to confirm their original bias, which is that Jesus really is not from God. That's what he's calling them out for. So if you haven't heard of confirmation bias, confirmation bias is our tendency to cherry-pick information that confirms our existing beliefs or ideas. And we all have an inclination towards this. And in, in some ways, it's not that unhealthy. You can't be switching your worldview all the time. Presumably, if you've come to certain conclusions about things, you've done it thoughtfully. But the truth is that when we, when we are presented with information that seems to contradict beliefs that we have, we have a choice to make. And the natural human tendency is to try and protect the beliefs that we already hold, even when they fly in the face of evidence in front of us. Now, this kind of confirmation bias is observed in many ways in people. In some ways, it can just be pretty harmless. Apparently, one example of it is the reason you enjoy a classic song is that you actually enjoy the experience of anticipating the melody or the beat as it comes up. So that's why when people love when a classic song from like Queen or something comes on. People love to kind of get amongst it because part of the enjoyment is you, what you're expecting to come up actually comes up, and that's part of the enjoyment. That's why sometimes it's a bit annoying when you hear someone do a remix of it or maybe you, there's a, 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 a hymn that really is a mint condition hymn and someone decides to put a modern chorus over the top of it. That can be a bit dissonant and unpleasant. But when it comes to our confirmation bias with worldview, sometimes it can be the case that we hold on to beliefs that really fly in the face of new evidence and yet we double down and hold on to them anyway. And here Jesus is calling it out in the Pharisees. They see Jesus performing incontrovertible miracles. They see it happen before them. And instead of coming to the natural conclusion that maybe what they thought about Jesus, that he wasn't the Son of God, was actually wrong, instead they find new and ridiculous ways to justify their position that Jesus is not the Son of God. And he calls them out by it. He says, look, even by your own standards this doesn't make sense. When you see your own folks do these things, you say it's from God, and yet when you look at me, you say, that can't possibly be from God. That must be from Satan. And he's blasting them for it. Now Jesus here is saying and calling them out, saying that it's clear from what he does 
that he is sent of God. And that's why he goes on to warn them very starkly in what he says next. I don't know if you picked it up on the first run through. Look at what he says in Matthew 12, 30 to 32. He says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus says, you cannot be neutral about me. You cannot sit on the fence about me. He says, you are either with me or you're against me. And this is a significant claim. Jesus is saying that if you are with me or against me, it is the determining factor of where you will spend eternity, either in eternal separation from God in death, in hell, or with him in bliss and eternal peace forever. Where you stand on Jesus is the difference between those two outcomes. See, some people think that ultimately the only thing at stake in our lives is whether or not we could live life to the full and actualize our potential. That that is the only thing that's at stake in this life that we have. But Jesus is saying there is so much more at stake. That this is the only life we have in order to get it right about Jesus. And where we land on who Jesus is will determine where we are for the rest of eternity. That this really is just the pre-show that the real thing is coming. And it matters incredibly. It is of the utmost importance that you get Jesus right. See, this is the gospel. The gospel is that God has appointed a day of judgment where he will judge all of his creation. And there is a part, of us in, there is a part in us that longs for that day because we long for justice to be done for people, for despots who have got away with war crimes to finally be brought to justice, for all the difficult and unjust things that we see happening in the world around us that we just don't seem to have the agency to solve, one day God will solve it. But the problem is that he won't just judge them, he will judge every soul. And he will judge us according to what we've done. He will hold us accountable. And the problem is that none of us have lived a life righteous enough for God to be able to stand before us and say, innocent. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has made a way to be right with God through forgiveness. That's why he says at the end of the section here, whoever speaks a word against the, Son of, against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. That if you get it wrong about Jesus, you will miss out on the forgiveness that we need to be reconciled to God forever. Jesus says, look, you can get anything else wrong, but you cannot get this wrong. He says, you're either with me or against me. But I don't know if you noticed, there was a little phrase in there that was a little confusing. There was a section in there that I'm going to just double back on now that strikes most people, even if you've been a Christian for a long time and read through it, you really can't go past this passage without noticing it. Look at what he says there as we just zero in on verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, is Jesus saying here that there is a sin that, if committed, cannot be forgiven? A sin, deliberate or not, that once it's committed, is final and cannot be taken back and cannot be reversed? 
Immediately, we think this can't be the case. It, it sounds kind of wrong. But the fact that it feels wrong is no indication that it is. And I think this is a good test case for how we deal with when the Scriptures touch on something that we find difficult. See, how we approach texts like this really reveals what we think about the Word of God. Because if we just come to a text that's difficult, and every time we say, well, I don't really like that, and we just discard it, it demonstrates that we don't really believe that God's Word holds authority. We believe that we're the highest authority, and we determine what's true for ourselves or not. So if we are a people who want to sit under God's Word, how do we approach a difficult text like this? Well, there are two principles that really help us in letting the Bible interpret the Bible rather than letting us just read our own interpretation over the top of it. And the first one is that we use the clear to interpret the unclear. The Bible is one coherent story from beginning to end. And there are themes and teachings that travel through the Scriptures. So when there are difficult or unique texts, we can interpret the unique texts in light of the, the broad, clear teaching. And the broad, clear teaching of the New Testament, the reason this passage feels so uncomfortable is that the broad, clear teaching of the New Testament is that every sin can be forgiven. John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life and shall not perish. Paul called himself the chief among sinners. And he almost certainly would have echoed this teaching that Jesus' miracles were by the power of Satan at some point, and yet he himself was saved and appointed to plant churches and to spread the gospel for Jesus. Ephesians 2 says that by grace you were saved, not by works. 1 Peter 3.16, For Christ, sin, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Again and again, the New Testament states without qualification that any sinner can be saved. And so that's a clue that maybe there's something else going on here. But I think that's not enough on its own. We want the passage to be able to speak for itself. And so the second principle that we can use, we've got, we use the clear to interpret the unclear. But the second principle is that context is king. Consider what's happening around the immediate verse to see if there are clues to the meaning of what's going on here. Now Jesus himself here says, all sins and blasphemy will be forgiven. So he seems to be confirming the New Testament teaching here that there is no sin that would preclude someone from coming to faith in Jesus. So what is it that he's getting at here? Well, the context of the passage is that he's being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. But if we look a bit more broadly into the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see that Jesus' ministry and his miracles and witness are powered by the Spirit of God. That immediately when he begins his ministry, he is sent out by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the passage just preceding this, a one, that, one that Matthew brings up to confirm that Jesus is the promised suffering servant, the King, the Messiah who will be sent from God, it says that God's Spirit will be upon him. And so the wider context of Matthew would tell us that Jesus' ministry was powered by the Spirit. But here the Pharisees are describing what is clearly the work of the Spirit as the work of Satan. And Jesus is saying, if you think that my power comes from Satan instead of the Holy Spirit, if you would blaspheme the Holy Spirit in that way, if you would speak wrongly of God, which is what blasphemy is, and describe the Spirit as Satan, you could not get it more wrong than that. He says, if you do that, you don't understand who I am, and forgiveness for you is impossible. Because the truth is that the only way you can come to have forgiveness is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is who He says He is. And to confuse Him 
as being sent from Satan as opposed to from God is about as wrong as you could get, Jesus. And for that, Jesus says there will be no forgiveness. It's clear here that Jesus is saying that the unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus. Now at this point, you might be saying, well, great, why didn't he just say it like that then? But again, it's context. I mean, you and I weren't the first audience. He's clearly here speaking to ancient Near Eastern Jews, and to them, he is speaking plainly. They understood that blasphemy was a sin. They understood that that was a serious sin, and it was something that they revered. He's using language and warning them in a language that they would have connected with and understood. And it might seem a bit obscure to us, but to them, the warning was stark and clear. You reject Jesus, you miss out on the one chance of forgiveness that we have. Jesus here warns you are either with him or against him. So what do we do with this? Well, if you're tuning in and you describe yourself as maybe sitting somewhere on the fence, you don't really feel strong negative feelings towards Jesus, but find it a bit hard to believe that he's the son of God, can I encourage you to heed Jesus' warning here that there really is no way to be halfway towards Jesus. There really is no sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Again, in this, let me just encourage you to regard the words of C.S. Lewis when he says this. He says, I'm trying to prevent here anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense that he was a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Jesus' teaching is clear. He says you are with me or against me. And if you want to find out more about what that means, we're running Alpha on Zoom each week, a chance to to dive into the teachings and the claims of Jesus. And the easiest way to let us know is just to hit that Google form and reach out to us. We would love to have you a part of that because there is nothing of more significance, even during a lockdown, than where you stand before Jesus. So that's the first thing, I think, the first implication of this teaching. But the second one is if you are a believer... We need to pull out of the languishing of this current moment, don't we? Now, there are many helpful and practical things that we can do in a lockdown to just overcome the meh of it all. And over this week, I'm going to send out an email just with a few just helpful things that us and the team have found in terms of, just, in terms of trying to thrive during lockdown. But ironically, a lot of this requires a motivation, which is exactly the thing we're missing. And we need, emotion, we need a motivation that would defib our hearts and shock them awake and cause them to beat again. And isn't this enough? That Jesus has come to die to offer eternal forgiveness to anyone. That even right now, as we see the fragility of life in a global pandemic, that Jesus has the answer to life indestructible. And there is a war going on for the very souls of people. And then many people are languishing in apathy with souls just drowning in the mire of meh when they could be living for the age to come with peace and hope in Jesus. And as Christians, it is, it is time to press on. And so I want to encourage you towards one end. 
We have a series coming up, as Jacob has mentioned, as we've mentioned week after week, called Doubt. And there are many people who I fear have been caught up in just the, the languishing of this season. And maybe they've bowed out of church or deconstructed their faith or just feel like there's, there's probably just nothing significant or of any matter concerning Jesus. So I want to encourage us to be the church to those people at this time. Because I think there are more people out there who are ready and willing to hear the good news of Jesus than we anticipate. I was struck by this even recently when Mel went on a walk with a friend and she was just talking about how her faith in Jesus has impacted her walk, particularly at this time with all the pressures of lockdown and all that sort of thing. And her friend made a comment that I've, I've heard before in other contexts and someone may have said to you at some point as well, but quite sincerely said, like, I wish I could have a faith like you. And I feel like the sincerity of that sentiment is the sense that I think in a secular world, many people feel like there is something really, there's a piece of their worldview that's significant and yet missing. And when they see someone who has a faith, they say, like, I can see this, that seems to be the missing piece for you, but also feel like I just couldn't get there. There are too many moral or intellectual kind of obstacles to actually having a faith like that. And so there is a hunger to want to have this kind of faith, to know Jesus, the author and creator of the universe, and yet at the same time, the belief that maybe they just couldn't get there. And the reason we're doing this doubt series is because it's for anyone who would struggle to believe the claims of Jesus. And we're not going to go through, obviously, every single obstacle that there is. We're going to hit up four of the biggest ones. I think there are many people in our lives for whom Satan has set these up as obstacles when really they're not. That actually the truth of Jesus is for everyone. And as a church, we want to be dedicating our hearts and our lives to seeing the lost come to know faith in Christ for the first time. And so I'm going to finish this time by praying that as the church, that God by His Spirit would be mobilizing us to point people to Jesus because there is life in Him. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that even as every one of us who follows you has had your mercy and grace poured out upon us, that you would pour out your grace and mercy upon many more daughters and sons. That right now you'd be working in the hearts of many people, that as we reach out and look to share the gospel and to invite, to engage in your word through this church community, that you'd be calling many people home to faith. That at this time, an unprecedented time in our experience, that we would see an unprecedented number of people come to real faith in Christ. That there might be much rejoicing in heaven, but also on earth and in this church. Father, we pray that you'd be putting people on our hearts and minds now, that just as your Spirit led Jesus in his ministry, that you would be leading us and guiding us and putting on our hearts people that we could reach out to, to love and to serve and connect with, and to offer up the hope of eternal life. And Father, we pray that through this, you'd be working powerfully to glorify your name. And we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.